0: Let us begin with prayer. Guide and direct our thinking, O Lord, that we may think thy thoughts after thee, that we may grow in grace and in understanding of thy word. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou art our sufficiency, that thy word is truth. that it speaks to our every condition, our every need. And so, our God, we come to thee. Open our hearts and our understanding that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. We shall begin by a general survey of the nature and meaning of law. First of all, let me observe that status education is essentially obsolete and irrelevant the curriculum as we have it today is an outmoded ancient and basically irrelevant curriculum when we come to the philosophy of the curriculum i'll deal with this problem at greater length but the curriculum as we have it today is basically the greco-roman curriculum which no longer deals with the basic problems and needs of man. Let me cite two examples. Two of the most basic subjects which are inescapable for every person living are law and economics. We live in a world of economics. Every person living has to deal with the problems of money of property of food clothing buying selling and yet nowhere along the line educationally do we get any teaching of economics until the university and in most colleges and universities economics is not a required subject moreover where it is taught with most Schools. it is not economics as such, but political economy that is taught, which is something else. As a result, people go through their lives knowing nothing about economics. They don't know Gresham's Law. They don't know laws of price, of supply and demand or any of the aspects of economic law. They're ignorant of them. As a result, we've had in recent years prominent government officials telling us that the Gresham's law is no longer operative. And then coming up with all kinds of ridiculous excuses on Gresham's law has been proven to be true. Another subject that is basic to our lives is law and again you can go all the way through school and never learn anything about law in fact i've had lawyers tell me they never learn anything about law in law school all they're taught is a particular type of law and case room, uh, cases and courtroom procedures they never study the meaning of law But law is something that is inescapable to life. We're surrounded by a world of physical law. We live in a realm of moral law, economic law, family law. Law is inescapable to our daily life. You cannot live apart from law. And yet whoever learns anything about law all the way through school. Is it any wonder when the two most basic subjects to our everyday life, theology apart, law and economics, are never studied that our culture is in crisis and that civilization is in trouble? You cannot neglect two such basic subjects without trouble, and we are neglecting them today. Now, the law of a society always points to the god of a society, because the source of law in any culture is the god of that society. For example, take a society of ancestor worship as Old China. In ancestor worship, the ultimate law is the senior member of the family and the spirits of the ancestors who are dead. The customs, the traditions they hand down are absolutely binding. There is a relativism in such a culture with regard to all things else. But the law of the fathers is absolutely binding an ancestor worshipping society the senior member of the family can choose if he wills that the girl babies be abandoned at birth as was the custom in Rome ancient Rome was an ancestor worshipping society or in China up until recently or he can determine that in a time of famine the sons excess sons can be sold into slavery his word is law he is the god of the society in Shintoism again law comes from the basic and the ultimate power the gods of the society in Japan a Shintoist society the Kamis are the ultimate power The word kami is usually translated as God. It's the supreme spirit in a particular area. So the supreme spirits in the areas where you are operating are the ones you bow down to. It's their law that guides you in the political spirit. It's the emperor who is the supreme kami. Therefore, it's the word of the emperor that is absolutely binding. In Islam, it is the social order. Allah has decreed a social order, and that social order, Islam, which means the political order, is absolute. There is no appeal beyond it. No power outside of it. Again, in humanism, the basic religion of modern man the source of the law is either an artistic man or it is the state. The state issues the law. The state is absolute. What the state decrees is absolutely binding upon men. But for us this cannot be so. Because we are Christians, because we believe the Bible is the word of God, For us it is God alone who is the source of law and therefore it is biblical law which must govern us. We cannot be Christians in the church and humanists outside any more than we can be Christians in the church and have another Lord in the school. God is one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. In every sphere of life, one faith, one Lord. Now, as we approach Scripture, we must recognize that justification is by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, by the sovereign grace of God received by faith. Sanctification, our growth in terms of that new life, is by means of the law of God. As St. Paul says, we are saved that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, as we approach Scripture, we must recognize that it is all law and all grace. Every word that God speaks is binding. It is all law. And yet it is all grace because the sovereign God in his mercy deigns to speak to us. To the sinner, God's law is death. And whenever St. Paul speaks of the sinner, he speaks of the law as death to him, as an indictment, as a handwriting of ordinances, a death penalty against him. So he says, and the commandment the law in its totality, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Romans seven ten. For the sinner, it's a death penalty. The sinner is afraid of the law; he hates the law. To us, the sight of a policeman is a reassuring sight, unless we're speeding outside the law then but if we're in any problem or in an area where we're fearful the sight of a policeman is a very reassuring sight to us when we're outside the law it's a menace it's a threat when we're inside the law it is grace to us it's a sign of life one of my most memorable experiences in that respect, I may have mentioned this, when I was studying Dostoevsky at the University of California. Did I narrate this story?
1: Something? I'm not sure it the same
2: story.
0: Yes, it was in one of my tapes, probably, because I like this story. We were studying Dostoevsky's crime and punishment Dostoevsky in that crime and punishment deals with this radical student Raskolnikov who's out to prove that there is no such thing as a god and a moral conscience and therefore if he chooses to kill somebody whose life is worthless, who is no better than a human louse, there's no problem. His conscience won't bother him. He's in the clear. So he deliberately goes out and murders somebody to prove his theory that there is no God, no conscience, that this is simply myth. The only problem is then his conscience begins to torment him. And everywhere he goes, he is haunted. The sight of a policeman makes him cringe and run, duck. And he is tremendously distressed when he meets this prostitute Sonia, who is stronger than he is because she knows she 's a sinner while he refuses to admit he's a sinner. Well, one of the students in the course was a philosophy major uh, and Dick was uh, quite a character. He identified so thoroughly with Raskolnikov because he believed in Raskolnikov's thesis. that as he was reading that book, he was Raskolnikov. We were discussing the book one day when we were out to lunch, and we rounded the corner at Berkeley. Uh, it was the corner of Bancroft and Shattuck, and we to the corner to go back to the campus and there was a police officer standing there and Dick ducked around the corner hastily. And then when I went to see what had happened, he was swearing, he was angry. He said that blankety blank book. I'm through with the course, I'm through with the book. When I start ducking policemen because of that book, I want no part of it. Oh, of course, the problem was he had identified himself with Raskolnikov and the act of murder to the point where his conscience was affected and he was afraid of the sight of a police officer. The commandment which was ordained to life I found to be death. So for the sinner the law is death. Romans 6.14 Paul says for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under grace we are no longer, longer under the law as an indictment we are under grace so now it is an ordination for life unto us it is not the law that is dead we are now as a new creation in Christ, dead to the law as an indictment. And every word of God for us is law. It's binding for us, and it is grace. The Puritans spoke of the grace of law and the law of grace. They said the scripture is the law of grace and They spoke also of the grace of law. Kevin has written a book which is well worth your attention and it has been reprinted quite often in recent years. The Grace of Law. But this is not all. We cannot begin to understand the function of law in God's program unless we grasp Expressions like this in 1 Peter 3 7, when he speaks of husband and wife being heirs together of the grace of life. The grace of life. Scripture speaks of life itself as grace. God, of His grace and mercy, created creation. Because He is absolutely sovereign, there is nothing that is inherent or natural about things that we can accept as, well, that's the way it had to be for us. No. Everything is of grace. But the whole of God's creation is saturated with law. Law is the blood of creation and also the bones, the structure thereof, so that there is no escaping law any more than there is escaping God. The psalmist says though I make my bed in hell behold thou art there." We can escape God nowhere. And everywhere God's law and God's grace are present. But men blind themselves to both. Men reject the sovereignty of God. Therefore they reject the totality of the scope of his law and they reject the fact that their very life is an act of grace. But there is no escaping law because all things and men are governed by God. Hence, law is basic to our lives.
2: When the law
0: idea of a civilization decays, the civilization collapses. This is why we're in a crisis today. A few years ago, one of the most prominent of English jurists, in his lectures at a major university in a little pamphlet printed by Oxford University Press, presented his here is with a crisis. He said, very bluntly, the Western world is in crisis. It is collapsing. Why? Because the foundation of the legal system of the West, he says, has historically been Christian. Its law has been derived from the word of God, Scripture. Now we have abandoned that. And therefore, the law of the Western world is in collapse and civilization is fragmenting. Why? Well, we as Christians know the answer. Humanism has a problem. It either must locate law in atomistic man. In those days, there was no king in Israel Who is the king of Israel? God. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This is what we have today. Every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. Do it yourself, law. Well, that's not the way I like it. Let's reorder society in terms of my imagination. Or else, the totality of all things, being put in the hands of the state to Karl Marx, of course, faced that predicament. Where was law to be located? Having denied God, logically he had to say, every man is his own law, but he knew that would mean the end of everything. Max Stirner, who wrote The Ego and His Own, spelled it out very clearly. He said, There is no law except my will. And Max Stirner turned on all the atheists of his day and he said, You are all disguised Christians. Why? And he spelled it out bluntly. He said, You will not sleep with your mother or your sister or your daughter. You feel that there is a law in the universe outside of man. But you cannot deny God without abolishing all law and saying there is only one will, one law in the universe, my will. And Karl Marx wrote his most violent book in a couple of volumes, fat volumes, which you can order from the Moscow... Publishers, It's not published outside of Moscow because its implications are rather radical for Western man. He's not ready to face up to it. Marx had only one thing to say. He did not deny the validity of Stirner's thesis. But he said, this way madness. This way total fragmentation. This way it is suicide. Of course, this was what the Marquis de Sade upheld, exactly what Stirner did. Stirner was a paler version of the Marquis de Sade. But the, the essence of Marx's argument was we cannot follow the logic of our thinking into anarchism, therefore we must have communism we must say the state is God upon earth in effect. So he stuck with Hegel totally at that point. Hegel had declared the state is God walking on earth. And Marx said we have to stand with that. Well, modern civilization is torn between this. Either on the one hand a fascistic social order, such as we have more or less, or... Of communistic social order. The one is international socialism, the other is national socialism. That's the only difference between them. Or else anarchism on the other hand. And this is why the world is in crisis today because the humanistic alternatives are both deadly to man. As a result, it is a time of tremendous opportunity for us both as Christians and in terms of Christian education. Because only the people who are ready to cope with the crisis of Western civilization, a legal crisis which has at its heart a theological collapse, the collapse of the theology of humanism, only as we are able to cope with that can we command the future. We have the answer. Biblical law. God is sovereign, therefore his word is sovereign. Therefore, in every sphere, we have the sovereignty of God and his word. Hence, the subject of biblical law is of tremendous importance for us. Now we're going to take a break for five or ten minutes, and then we'll get back into the direction of... Of biblical law, what it requires of us. As we speak now about the purpose of biblical law, we will really be be talking about the cultural mandate. The purpose of biblical law is simply to set forth the fact that God rules, God is Lord, God is sovereign. So biblical law deals with the development of God's ruler kingdom on earth as it is required of us. He requires us to rule under him in terms of his word. Man was created by God to be his prophet, priest, and king. As the prophet of God, He was to declare the word of God in terms of every area of life and thought and to apply the word of God to science, to agriculture, to the arts and sciences, to family life, to worship, to political life, to every area of life. So that man as prophet must interpret the word of God and declare the word of God for every sphere of life. Man as priest is to take every area of life and every activity and dedicate it to the Lord. And man as king must rule over every sphere of life under God. A man fell from this test. Christ as very man of very man came as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, which Adam was not. And in Christ and under Christ, we are recalled to that status as prophet, priest, and king. This is our life. This is our function. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, tells us that God created man and told him to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth. he gave him a limited area where God had already planted and prepared as a pattern for the whole of the world what God expected man to do. And so man was set over that area which was to be a pattern for the totality of the earth. Now one of the first tasks God gave to man was to name the creation around him, the animal life. Names in the Bible are classifications. In the Bible, that which is named is that which is classified. This is why in the Bible you find names changing. When a man's life manifested something other than what he originally was named, his name changed. God himself does some of that classifying. For example, Abraham. We don't know what his original name was before God called him. The Bible blots that out. When God called him, he called him Abram. He classified him father of many. Abraham had to wear that name by faith. And you can imagine Abram's Embarrassment at times as he went into the promised land by faith and people asked him, What is your name, Abram? Oh, father of many. How many sons do you have? None. How many daughters? None. They must have snickered behind Abram's back. They did it behind his back, I'm sure, because Abram was quite a potentate. His household had over 300 fighting men which meant that there were a good 900,000 men counting the small boys and the old in his household and as many women. A household of about 2,000. He was a of prince. Later he was required by faith to have an even more ambitious name, Abraham. Father of a great multitude. Classification. God classified him. This is why we are told that we are given a new name. God classifies us, not we ourselves. So that when we are redeemed in Christ, we are reclassified by God. The task, therefore, of naming the animal creation was a scientific task classification. There was an agricultural task. There were many applications of the creation mandate. There was also the family role, Adam and Eve, knowing and understanding one another in their relationship one to another. So that man in the Garden of Eden was given a practical limited sphere in which to learn the pattern that God wanted for the whole of the earth. Now man fell from that calling. He rebelled. He decided to exercise dominion apart from God and instead of developing the kingdom of God throughout the earth to develop the kingdom of man. To establish his own dominion in contempt of God the song of Lamech is to be understood in terms of this it's a song of defiance not only against man but against God and it declares what God may require in the way of justice and vengeance I go further I Lamech as my own God declare this is my law This is my dominion. This is how I exercise it. And of course we are told that the line of Cain became very ambitious very early, building a city, establishing arts and sciences. Why? Because of this tremendous urge to dominion apart from God. Apart from God. And, of course, the Tower of Babel sets forth the same thing. The Tower of Babel was a stepped pyramid. It was a religious center and a governmental center. The whole point of it was as man ascended from one degree to another. He came closer and closer to divinity, to be a god. This is precisely the symbolism that you have in Freemasonry. As you advance in degrees, you advance closer and closer to being a man God. And of course, Freemasonry claims that its origin goes back to the Tower of Babel. Now, man, as he is thought, to establish dominion apart from God has instead reaped a harvest of trouble. Man's harvest apart from God has been a loss of dominion over himself and a progressive exploitation and destruction of everything around him so that a humanistic society, a society centered upon man as God, is always in progressive disintegration. After a certain point, the inherent weakness, the inherent anarchism comes into focus and it begins to collapse. Thus it is only as man through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, is made a new creation that he can again begin, having now dominion over himself because Christ has dominion over him, to exercise dominion over the world. The creation mandate, thus, is basic to all of history. All of the ungodly are trying to develop the implications of the creation mandate without God. Whether it's the Tower of Babel or the UN or the United States or Britain or the Soviet Union, every society today has a plan for the salvation of man apart from God, for exercising dominion apart from God. But it only leads to greater and greater problems. It's important for us, therefore, to understand the nature of biblical law and what its function is in our society. Now, God, as he has given his law, has done it with the fact of the fall in mind so that biblical law has, first of all, the creation mandate in focus, exercise dominion and subdue the earth, under God, in terms of God's calling and purpose. But because the world is fallen, more is involved than was involved in the Garden of Eden. Now, what are the basic principles? First, there is restoration. The world must be restored under the rule of God, under his sovereignty, All things must be placed under his word, under his government. God's order, God's authority, God's rule, God's law, the word of God must be applied in every sphere of life. So we must, to fulfill the creation mandate, work for restoration. This involves a task of evangelism. We have a duty to reach out to all men throughout the world and all nations. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the cultural mandate. Bring them in, back under, restored to. God and his word, God and his authority, God and his rule. This is the task of Christian education. The restoration of the sovereignty of God over every subject, every area of life and thought. So that the child has to be educated in a Christian school. The culture mandate requires it. He has to be in a Christian home. He has to see his life, whatever the area in which he plans to go, in terms of the basic authority of God the total authority of God. So restoration is the first and basic aspect of the creation mandate as we now know it. Then second is restitution. Restitution means this that man having offended against God and against man must make restitution. Now, restitution towards God has only one ordained way the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Man himself cannot make restitution to God, only Christ can effect that. So the second great focus of biblical law, restitution, gives us the sacrificial system. It gives us Christ and his atonement. But also it has a manward side. So what does scripture say with regard to restitution in terms of man? Exodus 21 and the whole of the biblical law gives us one instance after another of restitution. Thus, to put it in terms of modern language and modern money and so on, if I steal a hundred dollars, I am required to restore a hundred and to be fined another hundred. Crime, in terms of biblical law, does not pay. There is no prison system in biblical law. There is only temporary imprisonment in terms of being held in custody until trial. Then, with the trial, restitution is ordered, and if restitution cannot be made, the man is a bond servant until he can work off the required amount for restitution. Thus, restitution is basic. In certain cases, restitution must be fourfold and fivefold. For example, sheep can reproduce, they have wool, they can be meat, therefore, fourfold restitution. You restore the sheep you have stolen and you are fined fourfold. With some things it can be as high as fivefold, as with oxen, which were beasts of burden, the leather was valuable, the meat was good. They were also very difficult to train, and so it was an art training them, which has now been largely lost. So restitution was fivefold. So, As we deal with biblical law, first we have the pattern of restoration. Second, restitution. And third, development. To subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over it, to conquer one area of life after another for Christ as king. As a result, biblical law covers the basic aspects of the creation mandate as they apply to us restoration restitution development the book of Isaiah gives us the picture righteousness of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea God's law God's righteousness God's dominion In terms of this, the Christian school has a basic function because the Christian school alone can make the Christian child aware of this triple calling, restoration, restitution, development, recognizing its Godward side and its manward side in terms of atonement and in terms of restitution. This involves, of course, the reign of Christ over us on the one hand and on the other the reign of Christ through us so that Christ's reign, when it is over us, will be manifested through us in the world round about us. If Christ is Lord over us, Christ will through us exercise his Lordship in one area of life after another. We cannot have any salvation without Lordship. If a man does not have Christ as Lord, he does not have him as his Savior. And this is an important fact that some of you have found out. And it's a dividing line between those who are truly of the Lord and those who are not. Because you can approach Christ as an insurance agent, as I said last time, who insures you, gives you a fire insurance policy. And you can approach him as Lord. And the two are two different religions. And we had better recognize it. There is no meeting ground between the two. Both may talk about Christ. but only one sees Christ as King or Lord. And Christ cannot be our Savior if he is not our Lord. Christ reigning over us and through us must therefore conquer every area of life. The family, the church, the state, the school, the vocations, the arts and sciences, Everything. There is no sphere outside the Word of God and outside the province of the godly man. We spoke in the previous period of law as grace. Law as grace means you are not to be as the Gentiles are, but as ministers one to another. But law is also God's order, God's authority going out to one area of life after another. Every area of life is under law, physical law, moral law, economic law, family law, and so on, as we pointed out earlier, because all is of God. The universe is a law order. There is no living in it apart from the lawgiver. Now I predict that in the next generation, the most important development in the history of the church and in the history of civilization will be either that Christians develop a sense of law and the creation mandate, because the two are inseparable, You're talking about biblical law, you're talking about the creation mandate, or the church will disappear. That I believe is impossible. So the issue is how soon Christians will wake up to the implications of the creation mandate and biblical law. The development of the Christian school in the past 20 years is an indication that there is a waking up to this. It's not a fully self-conscious thing yet. But there is a growing awareness of this. There is an awareness because those who are embarking on the Christian school movement and Christian school programs are aware of the need to develop something. They are recognizing that the faith speaks to more than to people in the pews on Sunday morning that it has a totality in its scope. Twenty, twenty-five years ago, when I first would mention the creation mandate, people would look at me and say, what's that? Now it's a matter of debate. Why? Because there's a growing awareness of its implications. It's become a challenge. Twenty, Twenty-five years ago, when I first would mention the creation mandate, people would look at me and say, what's that? Now it's a matter of debate. Why? Because there's a growing awareness of its implications. It's become a challenge. And people either stand in terms of it, or they are trying to understand more clearly its implications because they recognize that it is in terms of this that the future is going to be determined. And the Christian school is central to the understanding, the application, and the development of the creation mandate. Now, are there any questions?
1: Could you speak maybe a little bit on this... Idea that Christians today have the idea in their mind that the Ten Commandments is before them. Yes. And, they, and they usually attack this at the point of the Sabbath.
2: Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, why that's mm-hmm. Yes. There
0: is quite a widespread idea today that the Ten Commandments are not relevant. In fact, in some churches, it, it's the ultimate offense to teach them in a Sunday school class, let alone ever reading them, because we are supposedly no longer under law. Now, of course, this is an idea that for centuries was condemned by the church as antinomianism. But today, antinomianism, anti-lawism, is the reigning philosophy, faith, and error of the Christian church. Now, the significance of the Sabbath law is this. The Sabbath law, in effect, says man cannot exercise dominion apart from God. So, in a sense, man makes clear through the Sabbath that it is not his work that the world depends upon that while God requires it of him six days shalt thou labor it is not his decision but God's blessing that makes his work prosper and so what he has to say one day of seven is I take hands off my life because it is not my doing it is the Lord's The Sabbath, therefore, has its basic function, not worship, that's secondary. We're supposed to worship every day in the week. The basic function of the Sabbath, as the very word indicates, is rest. Now, because we are now no longer trying to save ourselves by our works, or by our knowledge or by our self-righteousness but we are saved through the grace of God through Christ we rest in the Lord we recognize that it is his doing his predestinating grace and power his government which brings all things to pass so that the church idea of Sabbath limits it and its meaning to worship. The biblical idea is the Sabbath is the sign that we can rest, that one-seventh of our lives and more in terms of the biblical requirement, because I believe in the Sabbath of the land and the sabbatical year, and I believe when we're a godly society we will restore the sabbatical year. It's a way of saying that we can truly trust in God's salvation and in his government now uh, Ed Powell is developing a textbook on economics from a biblical perspective and in it he deals with the idea of the sabbatical year rest from labor and the sabbath with regard to debt and he points out that it is impossible to have the inflation-deflation cycle which has haunted economics throughout the centuries if you have the full doctrine of the Sabbath applied. So he says you cannot begin a sound doctrine of economics without the Sabbath. I'll let him develop that and explain it sometime. Any other questions?
1: I think it's always interesting that <laughs> you bring it, you talk about God's law, and some of us will go and we'll, you know, we uh, see parts of God's law, we say this, yes, we'll hear to this, and then, mm-hmm. you know, other parts we won't. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, um, where the problem I have is in using the Old Testament law,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where, how, where do we break down? What law we use and what law we don't use? Like, an yes. example, the uh, sacrifices. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to be sacrificing in the future because no. of Christ. Right. How? What is the sound principle for the yes. Old Testament for looking at the law? All right. Now,
0: uh, everything in the Old Testament, unless It is specifically ended by Christ's atoning work, is still binding upon us. Unless the New Testament specifically says this or that is superseded by something else, it's still the Word of God. The attitude that is now taken is unless the New Testament confirms it, it's no longer binding. For example, There is a statement made by someone in a recent book that we are not to tithe because the New Testament after the resurrection never mentions tithing. So we do not have to believe in tithing. But the New Testament after the resurrection never mentions the virgin birth either. Does that mean the virgin birth is no longer binding upon us? You see... As we go back to the early church, we find, uh, and I'm an Armenian, and this was the practice in Armenia right up until World War One, and in the rural districts of Armenia, even under communist rule today, it is still practiced. Animal sacrifices. What do they do? Well, if, if you've read the biblical law, I quote one of the prayers used. This was done throughout Europe for a long time. The animal was taken to the door of the church. It was slaughtered there, a calf or the chicken, and a portion given to the pastor. And the prayer of the worshiper as it was sacrificed was, We know, O Lord, that the blood of bulls and goats no longer avails for sin. The atoning work of sacrifice by Jesus Christ. But as this blood is shed, we remember the blood that was shed for us. So you see, the Old Testament sacrifices, in a sense, were retained in a form to point to the atonement of Christ as a continual reminder that shed blood should always remind us of Christ's shed blood. Now, where the sacrificial system is not involved, we have a limited amount of alteration for example as against the Hebrew practice which was so rigid on the dietary laws that there was no communication with Gentiles to this day an Orthodox Jew will never come into your home nor share of your food nor have you in his home for dinner under normal circumstances because you cannot eat and partake of the same kind of food, and you're unclean. Which was carrying to the uh, the Old Testament uh, laws to a ridiculous point, and it was Phariseeism. Now, we know that St. Paul and the others, Peter and the others, practiced the biblical laws of diet, but they never did among Gentiles. They never allowed that to be a barrier And when Peter allowed it to be a barrier, Paul rebuked him publicly. Thus, I myself follow the biblical laws of diet, but I never, when somebody serves me something else, make it a matter of contention. I eat whatever is put before me, because that's not to be a dividing line. But I believe God gave us those laws of diet for our health. And I've found over the years, the more I've adhered to the Word of God and all its implications, the more I'm blessed. Pastor Olaf in Texas has found the same thing. How about that passage where Peter has a vision?
2: Yes. Ah, With, yes. Talk
1: about
0: that. All right, in that passage, the whole point of it, is not that the laws of that are changed, but that Peter is no longer to see the Gentiles as unclean. So this is the whole point there. In the 10th chapter of Acts, Peter has this vision of a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet, knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts, and so on. And there came a voice to him saying, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." But Peter said, "Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten of anything that is common or unclean." The voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Now, who was it, and what was it that was being called common that was at issue? Why, well, it was the Gentiles. Anyone who was not of Israel was called unclean and common. They couldn't even enter the temple. The court of the Gentiles was an outer court. So they were outsiders and still are to the Orthodox Jews. So this was the point. Peter, as an still influenced by Judaism, was unwilling to see that the gospel had to be proclaimed to these people who were still in his eyes, in some sense, unclean. So when... Cornelius sends his servants and when they come to him, what is the whole point of it? Why, Peter makes it clear that the meaning of the vision was that God, of a truth I perceive, that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So, and earlier it says, but God hath showed me, oh, uh, uh, the 28th verse, he you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So, this vision has nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with the status of the Gentiles.
2: Yes? In that connection, would you comment on Mark 7, uh, verse 19, where told that he declared uh, all foods clean? You may not find it quite right that way in the authorized version.
0: Mark seven 19, 19 yes. And he, uh, beginning with the 18th verse, uh, he said unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. Now, the key word there is defile. And the word defile there has to do with defilement before God, you see. It's a word that has to do with a sanctuary, with worship before God. So, what he is saying is that the defilement comes from the heart, not from who this doesn't affect the status of food it's given to God by God as a blessing for us so that these are the laws of diet we are beginning to find out from totally secular people that the biblical laws of diet are the best for our health that what they eliminate are foods that are bad for us dangerous the the things that are eliminated are scavengers are carriers of diseases. We know from surveys of people who observe the biblical laws of diet that their health and their life expectancy is better. So our Lord is not talking about matters of, the di- of diet here in terms of God ordaining something for our welfare. But what defiles us in relationship to God the thing that defiles us is sin in the heart now if I am careless of my health I'm destroying myself but I can still be undefiled in my relationship to God you see so it has to deal with a totally different category so our Lord is not saying the laws of food are invalid but the defilement before God is not an external thing, but it is a religious thing. It is what is the heart. Yes? Uh,
2: some of the uh, food laws in the Old Testament, have you found them to be uh, exclusively of religious nature, setting the Israelites off from the pagans, for example, they were not to eat a uh, kid. Eve and its mother's milk mm-hmm. and in my reading i discovered some of these commentators say that some of these some of these food laws cannot be traced to any um, uh, benefit as far as the body is yes. concerned at all mm-hmm. it's solely to set, set them off from the pagans
0: yes uh, that is one commandment in that area which we really know nothing And see perhaps someday we will um uh, they have found one or two cultures where a kid's seed in its mother's milk was a religious act. Uh, so some scholars have said perhaps that was the reason. It was barring a pagan form of uh, religious worship. But I don't feel entirely satisfied with that. There's so much that we haven't learned yet because we haven't set out to explore the validity of what the Bible teaches. For example, it was only accidentally in, in our generation that they learned that uh, the blood of a baby only coagulates properly on the eighth day. The first seven days it doesn't. And yet the Bible required circumcision on the eighth day. That's a remarkable fact, is it not? So there are many... uh of those rules and regulations with regard to diet, where we will discover, I believe, the m- meaning in due time when we give ourselves the study of them. Yes.
1: I don't know about the research behind the person, but someone said that the re- if you um, boil a babe, uh, a calf, in uh, milk, it's hard to digest. That's what But I don't know. Yes the research.
2: Yes. Uh, uh, now, uh, second point, and this is going back to the law, uh, our Antonomian depends, uh, of course, of the second Corinthians, chapter 3. And we talk about that which was engraved in stones which fades away. Mm-hmm. Now, would you comment on that? I've never uh, really found a satisfactory explanation in any of the commentaries that I've read mm-hmm. um, on this, at least. Uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. satisfactory. Uh, 2 Corinthians yes, 3, verse seven and then on to verse eleven.
0: Yes. Second Corinthians three verses seven through eleven. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Now, what St. Paul here is declaring is this. In the third verse, for example, he says, Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. When St. Paul says this, it would be ridiculous to assume, as some cultists have, some of the early uh, people of the Quaker persuasion and other related groups in the 17th century, that the Bible was done away with that there was the inner life now. The ministry was not of the old epistles, but us as the epistles of Christ. You see where that leads to. So that for some of these Quakers, any Hindu or Chinese could be a better living epistle without ever speaking about Christ, simply by cultivating the inner might, than this, the dead, the fleshly epistle. Well, we know that's an invalid interpretation. So, we know that when St. Paul is making the contrast, he is not saying either that this epistle that he's writing, or any of the other writings of scripture because epistle has that sense too not only letter but writing is done away with because we are now as temples of the Holy Spirit living epistles of Christ so this epistle remains and you and I remain I think there's no question about that is there alright so when he goes on to say that God has made us ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life, he is not saying that the letter is thrown away, but that the letter without the Spirit is a deadly thing. And the letter of the law, when there is no Spirit, is a sentence of death. Remember, we dealt with that earlier. If I am not in the Spirit of God, if I'm not regenerate, the letter of the law is an indictment. It's a death penalty to me, but it's a glorious thing all the same because it sets forth the righteousness of God. I am a sinner, and to me it's a fearful thing, but it's a glorious thing in that it upholds the absolute righteousness of God and declares it. So the law, as it stands, is a ministration of death to sinners, written and graven in stones. It stands there for all sinners, but for me now, it's no longer a thing engraven in stones. I have it here, but I have it here. It's written on the tables of my heart. That's the promise of the new covenant. Yes?
2: So, in verse 11, what does Paul mean when he says, For if that which fades away, I'm
0: yes. ready the in Yes. Well, if that which fades away or is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Yes. Because for us now, for us as Christians, it no longer is a death sentence. Now, because we're not perfectly sanctified, it isn't totally gone for us. You see, perfect love casts out fear, but we do not have perfect love. So that it's still, to a certain extent, a ministration of death. We're still afraid of God. We feel temptation. We feel the threat of the law. Not being perfectly sanctified, but it's no longer a death penalty to us.
2: Yes. So you would give this an individual application rather than a dispensational that he this a dispensational one. Right. And he puts Romans chapter six, to verse seven, or fourteen in the same category: we're not under law, but we're under grace. Mm-hmm. Now I've come to understand that in terms of. And individual application. Yes. And a person up until the day he's under right. uh, regenerate. He's under God's law, subject to but after that, he's under great. Exactly.
0: And you see, it's a ministration of death to every unregenerate person. And to us, because we are not perfectly sanctified, It still is to a limited degree, but it fades away the more we are regenerate. um, We have the more glorious ministration of the Spirit. But because we're not yet perfectly sanctified nor have that perfect love which casteth out fear, we feel the old Adam, the urging to sin. We struggle with it, but we are aware of that ministration of death. The soul that's in it, it shall die. So, it's a a struggle, you see. We can't remove it from our realm and say it's a historical, dispensational thing and therefore it's no longer relevant to us. Yes? Just one more. With
2: regard to the uh, question, I've tried to keep the concept of the Sabbath as being applicable uh, throughout all time. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course... One of the verses I always go up to is Colossians chapter two, verse
0: uh, sixteen, and I would like to have your uh, your treatment of that or your interpretation of that. Yes, Colossians two sixteen. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come that the body is of Christ. Now, we cannot recognize what Judaism had become unless we recognize its total externalism. I was reading something a while back by a man who was not a Christian who was uh, in a military unit with some Orthodox uh, Jews and he described their total horror of anything that was not kosher and yet their casualness about fornication because the fornication was with Gentile girls and it didn't really count but the kosher laws, the externalism was so essential to them now, this total externalism was basic to Phariseeism Phariseeism was a religion of observances, of set rules. You walked so many feet only on the Sabbath. The grave debate in Phariseeism that was never resolved was, could you eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath? And those who argued uh, you could said, the hen that, that lays an egg the day after the Sabbath labored over it on the Sabbath because the egg was several days in coming so it had to be in process of being an egg on the Sabbath too. Now, you see, that's the kind of externalism that they labored over. Now, the Sabbath had become that kind of an external thing. For example, the Pharisees said that drunkenness was legitimate on the Sabbath. It was not labor. It was fun. So there was no sin in being drunk on the Sabbath. But lighting a fire was a Sabbath. And I heard a prominent pastor once, an evangelical, uh, nationally known, talk about visiting Rabbi Klausner. And Rabbi uh was discussing something with him in the realm of biblical studies, and uh, it was in a book that was on top of a shelf in his library, and he started to go for it, but he would have had to climb the ladder to get it. So he says, ah, I cannot get it. It's the Sabbath. It's all right for a Gentile, a Christian pastor, to get it, so the Christian pastor climbed up and located the book. And uh, I knew uh, a Portuguese in the Bay Area. This was back in the 40s. Uh, who was a boy, had worked for a rabbi there, doing little chores around the house on their Sabbath such as turning on the lights. He could do it. After all, he was Gentile and didn't count. It was all right to have somebody flip the light switch, but they couldn't do it. Now, what is being struck down here? First, let no man judge you in these things which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So the criterion, the criterion is not these rules and regulations, but Christ. Are you a regenerate man? Do you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or are you going to be judged in terms of any number of things? He could have said there in terms of diet, in terms of uh, how many times you go to church on Sunday, because I know uh, this is a big argument in some circles. I know two Reformed denominations. One comes from a European background where they go to church Sunday morning, and that's it. The other goes Sunday morning and evening, and the Sunday morning and evening denomination looks down on the Sunday morning denomination, which in some respects is far, far sounder theologically, because they only worship once on the Lord's day. They're not real, really reformed. You see, uh, what the point is there? How are you to judge? What's the criterion? Now, I do believe that the church has perverted the Sabbath, so I'm anti-sabbatarian in that respect. They made it into a day of worship. The Lord says not, the scripture says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But the Sabbath means resting in the Lord. So while I'm anti-sabbatarian in relationship to the church, I believe as my forthcoming book on revolt against maturity and then my book on the doctrine of salvation, salvation and godly rule, where I develop the meaning of the Sabbath, in terms of this concept of resting in the Lord. When we teach that, we get to the heart of the meaning of the Sabbath rather than to its form. Just as we celebrate communion today, but we don't have communion in the church. There's no real knitting together of lives. There's no community. Communion and community are basic. So people go I know churches where people go to communion regularly and uh, don't speak to each other that's communion where they don't take care of the elderly in their congregation or the widows and orphans that's communion not according to the word of God you see we cannot limit things to a form.
2: Yes.
1: A long time ago when I was reading and studying prophecy, and I read a dispensation Apparently, this guy believed that in the millennium there would be restoration of sacrifice. And he quoted a verse, and I don't know the verse, and I was wondering, would you comment on that verse?
0: Yes. Uh, I don't recall the exact verse, but it's the latter part of Ezekiel the latter chapters of Ezekiel and it does not come from scripture it comes from the Schofield notes mm-hmm. uh, you see it, and it rests not so much on that passage in Ezekiel but on the fact that for Schofield Christ came to establish the Jewish hope a Jewish world kingdom but the Jews having re- rejected him His plan of salvation had to be altered. And so, the cross was the alternate plan. Well, this destroys the whole doctrine of atonement, you see. So, uh, the whole idea that uh, in the millennium sacrifices will be restored goes back to the Scofieldian idea that the kingdom... Of the idea of the Jews was the basic plan of salvation.
1: Okay. Um, now, the best
0: thing to read on that, by the way, is O.T. Alice, Prophecy in the Church. Arthur. Yes, he now, critiques well, that thoroughly.
1: Okay. I have, now, how do you don't believe? Do you believe that it is isn't wrong for Christians today to have some type of animal sacrifice for a remembrance of the Lord?
0: I think it's a good way of constantly bearing in mind the meaning of Christ's work, yes. You see,
2: what that
0: kind of thing did when it was practiced and where it is still practiced, it's being practiced by the farmers in Armenia in defiance of the Soviet regime. What do they do every time they go to the door of the church in their farming communities and they kill their calf there and pray over it they're witnessing that their salvation is not from the soviet union but it's through the shed blood of christ they do it as an act of defiance as well as an act of faith
2: so you
0: see uh, it, it's a continual reminder of the atonement i think that's valid Now, apart from that, the sacrificial system has a number of principles embodied in it. For example, Leviticus 4 tells us that the sins of the common people are not as serious in the sight of God as the sins of the prince and of the priest. In other words, the whole graded system of sacrifices there says the greater the responsibility, the greater the culpability. Thus, the sin of a minister is more fearful in the sight of God than the sin of the people in the pew. The sin of a political leader is greater in the sight of God than the sins of the people who are brought before him. So the judges up and down the state of California were deciding cases in terms of humanistic law are on the sight of God more guilty than the criminals brought before them, guilty as those criminals are on the sight of God.
1: Now what do you do with altars? How many altars are there? I mean, like if you're gonna have sacrifices you've got to be in altars, right? No,
0: because those are not sacrifices in the biblical sense, they're memorials.
1: Okay, so then you would there are sacrifices in the old testament, like as far as the tabernacle and the you say, no, absolutely.
0: No, there's no place for that. Okay.
1: That's finished. Okay, I just want mm-hmm.
2: to sure. Yes. No, you know. no. You
0: see, that type of sacrifice is a memorial. It's mm-hmm. a memorial.
2: Yes. So, in theory, uh, would you take issue with people who say that in the millennium they're supposing that their view of the secret temple is... Uh, in theory, would you take issue with them on the point
0: that they're sacrificed without memorial? I would take issue with them because uh, their whole point is that it is the uh, Jewish kingdom that's going to be established. And therefore, the memorials are a Jewish thing, as though we have nothing to do with them. So their idea of it is that... Uh, we are separated from Israel when we are the true Israel of God and that the Jewish nation constitutes the Israel of God the Israel of God is the believing people of God the kingdom of God literally Israel can mean God rules or God fights so Jacob was named Israel a prince with God and also a fighter for God. So, Israel is only there where God rules and God, through those people, is waging his warfare. So the very word Israel is a creation mandate word, you see. Now, uh, uh, the idea that uh, this physical Israel is going to be reconstituted and somehow we're not Israel is invalid. Israel is where God rules and the people through whom God wages his war. Yes.
2: In your book on biblical law, you mention on um, since we're dealing with cultural manifestation, management. You mention uh, a quote McIntyre, I And also there's other works that uh, approach the creation management that McIntyre's position. The idea that between Gen- uh, from Genesis 1:28, you have a fall to recognize and so therefore after that you find no discussion of subduing the earth. In Genesis 9 you have the the, uh, repeating of of, uh, filling the earth and so forth, but no direct command to subdue the earth. And of course people coming from the uh, opposing creation mandate ideas are are, uh, quick to bring that up. And I've seen that argument repeated over and over again in many other works other than, uh, of course, McIntyre wasn't familiar with uh, of other mm-hmm. words that I've encountered that bring that idea up again and again, yet I've never seen really an answer to that, just sort of from an exegetical standpoint. Yes, well, as a matter of fact,
0: from the dispensationalists themselves, a the creation mandate is present in the Bible. I forget the name of the man, the Berean uh, Ministry out of Chicago. He's a voluminous writer of books. Uh, quite a Lindon. no. Anyway, uh, he has a new book out on the Great Commission. He rejects it. Why? Because it's the creation mandate. So he says the Great Commission is not for the church. It was for Israel, and therefore with a church age beginning, which he dates uh, a few years after Pentecost, the creation mandate is no longer valid. Well, he is a logical dispensationalist, you see. But he does recognize the creation mandate there. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, the Great Commission has the name great precisely because... It's the second commission. What was the the commission as against the great commission? Joshua. The commission to Joshua. And Joshua 1, 2 to 9. And the great commission is a summation of Joshua's commission. What is it? Go out and subdue the area that is the promised land. And wheresoever the sole of your feet shall tread, that shall be yours. So, now it's made the world. Go ye therefore and make disciples
2: of all nations.
0: All power in heaven and on earth is given unto me. I have dominion. He's the second Adam for the creation mandate. So, what does he do with that mandate? He now passes it on to all his followers and says all right I as the second Adam having all power and authority given to me now send you out this is why a strict dispensationalist like this man
1: objects to it yes um, now yeah I thought that was an interesting the first time you mentioned that I thought that was interesting comment your comment on the nation because you know, mm-hmm. we usually look at it, you know, individuals. Yes. And we don't really reckon with that, at least I not mm-hmm. But now, would you baptize the nations? How? What do you do with the baptism part? Is that for the ones who are converted, or is that really getting the whole issue? Where we yes. Have, you know uh, how, Right.
0: The term baptism, uh, baptism has both reference the rite of baptism, and also bringing them into and under the power of the Spirit. Just as circumcision is used literally and figuratively, the term baptism in Scripture is also used literally and figuratively. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea crossing. That's a very figurative use, you see. So, both words are used literally and figuratively.
1: you think in that case it would be uh, figuratively?
0: Well, how are you going to literally baptize all nations, whether you immerse them or sprinkle them or asperse them? It's kind of a problem. What it does mean is that the individuals are to be brought in by baptism. Mm. Uh, Baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And the nations are to be brought under the sway of the Word of God and the Spirit
2: of God.